Welcome to Lamestream here on the 440 Sports Network. My name is Braden Gall, and you can follow me on Twitter at Braden Gall. My name is Steve Cavendish. You can follow me on Twitter at Scavendish. You like this show? Rate, review, subscribe. Smash that subscribe button. Tell, you know, two, four. Tell an even number of people <laughs> that 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 you they, you like the show and that you need them to listen. Not an odd number. It has to be like a two, four, six, eight, ten, some multiple of that. Basically, the same reason my wife and I have chosen not to have a third kid. It's hard to get a table for five, Steve. All right, it's it easy. To, it's easy to get a table for four, and you can find those everywhere. In particular, at Jasper's, and you can just go tell all four people, and that fits Steve's criteria of telling only an even number of people about the show. Also, if you have a third kid, you have to go zone all the time. And that's just uh, yeah. that doesn't work out. You got to buy a new house, new car. It's ridiculous. So we're no. we're we're pretty good at four. Um. Jeff Perlman will be our guest on the show today. A fascinating individual, nine-time author, New York Times bestseller, uh, wrote the Sports by Brooks piece as well, like just Walter Payton, the USFL, the Showtime Lakers, uh, you name it, it, it. He's covered it and written about it. Bo Jackson, the New York, the New York Mets in 86, like he's done, he's got an unbelievable career. And But he started at the Tennessean making really big mistakes. So we're going to talk with him coming up in just a second. However... Lamestream Sports is brought to you by Jaspers. Always brought to you by Jaspers. If and when the Predators play hockey games, you will get really great specials to watch those games should those games take place. $3 beers, $10 smash burgers. I mean, what more do you want? You get a great deal. You get the Predators who are worth watching this season. <laughs> they are. Explicably. And yeah, it's a great time. Go to Jasper's. And you get free parking and you probably don't get COVID. <laughs> so go to Jasper's. All good things. Where you get all those good things at Jasper's. We really, really appreciate it. A couple of programming notes. We will be out a little early next week on the podcast. We've got uh, we, what we think will be a very fun episode for everybody out there. Well, you will find out exactly how popular all of the media members in Nashville truly are on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is what we're doing next week on the show. And you'll hear from Scott Ramsey, who's going to talk a lot of finances and a lot of stuff about uh, the Music City Bowl and how that's evolved and changed and where the future could be for that, that as well. So we got a big episode planned for you guys next week, so make sure you tune in. That'll be out a day early uh, as well. We'll have ratings and recommendations coming up a little bit later on in this show. Steve, Jeff Perlman, I think there's a few things we want people to pay attention to in this interview. I think for me, it, it is one of the threads in this conversation is how long-form, deep-dive thoughtful, nuanced conversations about topics and, and stories is still very much alive, that books are sort of leading the way in that department. And Jeff, obviously, is, is a big fan of, of that concept happening. Um, so that's that's one of my main themes. I know one of your big uh, talking points and conversation points with him was that that people make mistakes and that it's part of the job as a journalist and you have to learn from them. I, I love how open Jeff is. And he actually writes about this a lot on his Substack and uh, I mean, I, I think he includes in every newsletter, you know, well, I think he calls it one of my biggest fuck ups. You know, here, here it is. And he had a, he had another one that was really funny last week. I, I think it was a story that he, he had he had the printout of a story that didn't run. And, and, and he discusses why it didn't run. It was really it was really fun. I, I think that's valuable. I think you learn you learn from looking at other people's mistakes, uh, but you also learn from making your own mistakes. And, you know, and we'll get into that. I mean, I, I think that's. Part of, the, part of the problem with how newspapers have changed is that there's a, there's a layer of editing that's gone. And, and, and those people were uh, the backstop for a lot of really young, uh, talented reporters who mess things up. Like Jeff, I mean, yeah, he, yeah. He, he's got a really good lead that didn't get into, <laughs> uh, I'm not going to spoil it, that, that his editor took out because 
I mean, it would have been really funny, but at the same time, yeah, it probably you can't wouldn't have worked. Than in a family newspaper, yeah, yeah pro- probably wouldn't have worked. And we'll talk a little bit more about those mistakes. Uh, by the way, all of which happened in Nashville in the '90s uh, for the Tennesseans. So uh, obviously, a huge tie to Nashville for Jeff Perlman. Again, author of all these great books, nine of them. Uh, he's got the Substack, so a lot of different stuff to get to with Jeff. And uh, without further ado, here was our conversation with the New York Times best-selling author Jeff Perlman. Jeff, welcome to Lamestream. Thanks uh, so much for giving us a few minutes of your time. We do appreciate it. Any chance to talk mid-90s Nashville, Tennessee, I'm always in. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I guess, you know, we can always get to like a best-selling author for the New York Times and nine books and all that stuff and Sports by Brooks. We'll do all of that. But let's start with mid-90s Nashville media. Kind of tell everybody who don't know about your background and your sort of history in this market who, who who were you when you got the job at the Tennessee and sort of describe yourself as a, as a reporter at the time? I mean, I was awful. I was, uh, I was hired out of the university of Delaware. I'd interned at the Tennessee I had an internship at the Tennessee in the summer of 1993. It went well in the features department, even though I want to be a sports writer, nobody offered me an internship except the Tennessee and a newspaper. And I think Idaho. And I took the Tennessee a great summer, like the, the best summer of my life by far. We lived at Tennessee State and it was me and a bunch of other interns. I drank a lot and had fun and it was great. And I got to write. It was the best. And I love Nashville. It was my first time ever in Nashville. I loved it. And the next summer I got hired and they only basically they only had one position opening and it was for the food and fashion writer. And I didn't know anything <laughs> about either subject at all. Loving zero. But the editor, there was a new features editor named Catherine Mayo, and she wanted the section to be more funky and fun, higher college kid who seemed like he was in. So I took the job, 26000 a year, lived on written riverfront apartments on the Cumberland. It was pretty sweet. And I was awful, 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 awful. I was the worst, most insufferable, cocky, didn't want to listen to anyone, thought I was the greatest writer who ever lived. Just the worst. You could picture the worst and then multiply it by 100, and that would be me at the Tennessee in, in 1994. <laughs> and basically, I would make one mistake after another. I was just brutal, like just brutal. And I just, I mean, the th- were so ridiculously bad. I once did a story about a, still there, there was a place called the Corner Market and they did, uh, it was like a place where they did all fancy, they did different meats, like funky meats. You, know, you don't want to just go there for steak, you go there for buffalo or oxen. Or, and I was driving around with the chef and I asked him if he ever cooked human flesh. I have no idea why I asked him if he ever cooked human flesh. <laughs> but my editor calls me to the office and she's like, did you ask, did you ask this guy if he cooked human flesh? Maybe, you know, like I couldn't get, and then my worst moment ever, my, my worst moment, truly my lowest moment, maybe as a human, but definitely at the Tennessee. And there was one of my coworkers was a woman named Sheila Jones. She was one of my favorite people in the world. She was like the office manager of the features section. And we used to talk trash to each other all the time, all the time. And one day I was working late and she had left her computer on and they had inner office messaging on the computers. And we, again, we used to mess with each other all the time. And I, went to her computer and typed, hey, Sheila, go F yourself. And it was like sending it from herself to herself. So she comes in the morning and she sees this message. Ha, 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 ha. I'm home. I get a call. Jeff, you need to come into work. Why? Well, Sheila's been having issues with a stalker. And we think she was he was on her computer last night. Oh, my God. So <laughs> keep on. I'm, I'm 22 years old. And I'm like, okay. Sheila is the best human being on the planet, truly. She's probably, you know how like people when you're 22, everyone who's over 30 seems 60, but she was probably 33 years old, right? But she was just the best. I'm like, Sheila, I need to talk to you. 
And she's like, what is it, Jeff? And I'm like, I did it. It was me. I was just goofing around, blah, 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 blah. My, my boss's name was Catherine. I go, do we need to tell Catherine? She's like, yeah, I think we do. And I walk into Catherine Mayer's office, my editor and a lifelong friend. And I'm like, Catherine, it was me. I did it. I got the best chew out I've ever got in my life. Just <laughs> reamed out. And it was just one thing like that after another. I was just a, co- a mess up, a total mess up. I need to read something here. So this is uh, from uh, this is from uh, the media column at the Nashville scene at the time. There's a guy named Henry Walker. Henry Walker. Was the, column. the lead is, <clears throat> if there's one cow pie in the field, the Tennesseans' Jeff Perlman will manage to step in it. And then goes through sort of a litany of different things uh, through here. It's really interesting is the, those jobs are about making mistakes. That's the way you end up learning a, a lot as a young reporter. I mean, you have editors and who, you have people there who, you know, wrap you on the knuckles and, and do whatever else. But I, I find it really interesting that you survived like kind of all of these mistakes. If that were happening today, like if you, if you were publishing to the internet today where, where mistakes were there for all the world to see, do you think that would have cut short your career? It's interesting. In a way, yes. In a way, no. I think, I think um, nowadays are so sloppy that I actually think people are used to sloppiness. Like people make mistakes all the time. Right? The Tennessean, I would write a story or go through the copy desk. You'd get a very back now. There was something you couldn't check or whatever. I was a kid who made mistakes. You couldn't stop a kid making mistakes, but you could stop him reaching the print. Nowadays, things are so sloppy that I actually think um, it's easier to survive. It wasn't a job like it was a uh, the Tennessean in the 1990s was a was a major newspaper uh, in the land of major newspapers. It wasn't the New York Times or the Washington Post, but it was kind of next year. And it, I don't think it was a place. I don't think they were looking for people to make mistakes. They were definitely willing to cultivate a young writer and help him come along. But I don't think they were like, oh, this is great. He's going to make mistakes on the job. And we're going <laughs> to have to have corrections in the paper. That's awesome. Like, nobody wants that. I mean, I remember I did a story. It was one of my biggest pieces. There was a rock band called Dreaming in English, and they're trying to make it. And uh, I pitched a story about following them around for a week and just doing this thing about a band trying to make it in Nashville. And it wound up being like a 2,000-word story probably, and uh, it jumped from the front page. And I was so excited. And the guitarist was a guy named Roger Nichols, a really nice guy. And I called him, and I was like, hey, Roger, what do you think of the story? He goes, yeah, it was great, man. It was great. Great story. Great job. There was this one thing. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> what was it? He's like, yeah, our lead singer's name is Ty Banks, not Ty Brooks. Ty Brooks, you had it wrong the entire story. <laughs> and I never told anyone to the paper. I was like, I can't survive all these mistakes. So I was like, okay, I should have told, obviously, but I was like, so here's what I will say about that paper. They gave me so many opportunities and they put it up with me. It was really insufferable. Like at one point they tried giving me a mentor, like an older journalist to work with. And I turned it down. I was like, no, nah, I'm good. I don't need that. <laughs> you got ban- you got banished to cops. And, and, banished that, to cops. and not just cops. Like, I think you got banished to night cops, didn't you? I got, ba- all right, I got banished to night cops. They put me at a desk with a police scanner. I lost the scanner. Okay? <laughs> and here's my claim to fame. I would say my all-time claim to fame at the Tennessean is one time the National Police did a prostitution sting. And they wanted a, a reporter to go along to sort of discourage soliciting in the city of Nashville. So I showed up at a little motel in a crappy part of town and there was a police, uh, they had a surveillance vehicle across the street, like a dilapidated camper. They had an undercover female officer in front of the motel posing as a hooker and they had cops in the motel room. And at first I was in the surveillance vehicle watching it all go on with cameras. And then they said, do you want to go in the motel room and be a part of the stakeout? I was like, yeah. So I go in, it was a really memorable scene. I'm literally in the bathroom with like a bunch of cops. It's quiet. 
you hear, come on, baby, come on in and jump out. <laughs> so, and I remember the guy put his, the, the guy had his wallet and a photo with his kids and that whole thing. So I captured the scene and I go back to the paper and I'm writing a deadline. And the lead I wrote, I don't remember the guy's name, but the lead I wrote was all John Smith wanted was a blowjob. And <laughs> my editor, Ted Power, great editor, literally did what you just did with your hands except <laughs> on his head. He was like, and he goes, Jeff, we're in the Bible Belt. Just <laughs> so if you're playing the hits, I've got a request. Yeah. I need you to tell the A-head story. All right. The A-head story that was is BS, actually. All right. So Henry Walker, the scene, I got no beef with this guy. It's been years, but like he wrote this thing and they were just after a while, understandably, they were just beating up on me. Like they were like, oh, it's a slow news week. Let's see where Perlman screwed up in the test. <laughs> totally fair. And I get it. I do the same thing. I was covering a high school basketball game and there was a woman screaming at a ref. And I was writing about parents. I think the, I was writing a piece about parents, overzealous parents at, at basketball games. Maybe that was the topic. And she was screaming, you're an asshead to the ref. You're an asshead. A-S-S-H-E-A-D. And the scene, because we're in the Bible Belt, blah, 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 wouldn't let me write asshead. They made it A-H-E-A-D. So I read like a head. You're... And Henry Walker wrote, that I screwed up and what she was yelling was you're ahead that I didn't like that a dash dash different. And he was wrong. He was actually incorrect. I remember telling him, I was like, you actually got that wrong. She was screaming asset. They just wouldn't let me. Get. So that was not my, that was not my doing. That was a Tennessean style guide. Just saying. What's, uh, so, so did Henry ever do a correction? No, 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 no. But uh, I understand his skepticism. I mean, I, I did one column where I wrote about, I wrote a column about, I'll tell you two funny, if, if you want the two, I'll give you two and then I'll, I'll stop babbling. I did a story about how Christian schools shouldn't have prayer at their games, right? And they actually let me run this column. And it's like, I was almost just like this militant Jewish New Yorker who was like, screw these people. I'm just going to write everything. You know, like it made no <laughs> sense. The Christian school, of course, they can have prayer at their school. The best thing is, um, the best moment for me learning wise at the Tennessee and, and a lesson I tell people over and over again. I had an editor named Larry Taft when I was in sports. Ultimately, I moved to sports. And I covered a football game. It was David Lipscomb, good pastor. And this was my second to last ever assignment at the uh, Tennessean. David Lipscomb had a quarterback named David Kirkow. I still remember that. This is 1996. And I wrote, Kirkow had an up, or, up and down game. His passes either went way too up or way too down. Right? <laughs> not a big deal, but like high school parents can be pretty, you know, like I don't, to me, that's not so horrible. You know, like I get it. It's a high school kid. You can't really kill a high school kid. But the letters and calls that came in that week were intense, right? Really intense. And like, who's this guy? And how dare you do this? And blah. So my editor, Larry Teff, I had already accepted a job at Sports Illustrated. I'm sorry, it's my dog. Get out. Sorry about that. I'm really sorry about that. No, you're good. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Um, my editor, Larry Taft, was a great, great editor. He really wasn't. He was a prep editor at the Tennessean. And he goes, um, you're going to cover David Lipscomb next week. And I'm like, I'm going to cover David Lipscomb next week. Like, these people want to kill me. And he said, you always need to show your face when you write something about someone. You have to be accountable when you write something about someone. And this was my last assignment ever. I'd gotten hired by Sports Illustrated. I was leaving the Tennessee. And so Larry Taft was making my last assignment, basically a suicide mission to David Lipscomb. <laughs> show up at the game. I cover the game. I go down to the sideline. It's a fourth quarter. You can walk sort of on the sideline if you're a preps reporter. And I have my notepad. And I'm surrounded by a bunch of the Lipscomb players. And David Kirkow walks up to me and he says, don't you ever come around here again. 
And the thing that pisses me off is that was my last assignment. So David Kirkow thinks he ran me out of town and I was just leaving. <laughs> but it was a great, it was a great, like you did that stupid John Rocker story for Sports Illustrated. And I was like, he needs to see me. It sucks. I don't like it, but he needs to see me. So there were so many lessons from that Nashville, those two and a half years that I've kept with me. That's fantastic. Taft went on to be the sports editor uh, at the at the Tennessee before he retired. A really good editor. You, you took you took one of those writer reporter jobs. It's like you and Dana Glenn had gone up there from the Banner about the, at about the same time, which are great gigs in the sense of you're a fact checker. You're uh, you're doing like a little bit of everything, and then you're also trying to get your nose in in front of a story and 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 pitch it to to the editors there. How did you? you what was the first thing you wrote at SI that, that you were like, oh, maybe I can do this? First of all, I want to say, I remember when Dana was hired at this about a year and a half before me. And I remember seeing the article in that it was a front page of National Banner. They had a box. Yeah. Maybe it was a sports person. Uh, Glenn high leaving for sports. I was so jealous. That was my number one emotion was like jealousy at Dana Glenn for moving to uh, Sports Illustrated. Man, it was a lot. So that, that job is hard. Like that job is a lot of fact checking and you're in an office and it was really thorough and really detailed and you get a lot of scraps. Like the thing I, I, the thing that I had going for me probably was I was pretty scrappy. Like there were better writers, always better writers and better, certainly better reporters, but I was really scrappy. The thing that really made my career at the Sports Illustrated and kind of set it off actually relates right back to Nashville. I was a reporter and I was struggling along like everyone and you're fighting for articles and you're doing this and you're doing that and you're trying to get little things in, but your main job is fact checking. When I was at the Tennessean, I once covered a boxing match and the guest referee at the boxing match was Billy Collins, Billy Collins Sr. And I was sitting next to someone. This is, again, I was a Tennessee reporter. And he said, do you know who that is? And I was like, I don't know who that is. He's like, that's Billy Collins. His son was a contender, was a really good boxer. And he fought a guy who took the padding out of his gloves and it ruined his career and he died. So someone tells me this at the Tennessee. And I always remember that. And at Sports Illustrated, I started looking into this story and not really telling anyone I was looking into it. Because back then, if you were a scrub and you had a really good story idea, they would give it to Gary Smith or Rick Riley. Like they would literally take it from you and give it to someone. So I was like, I'm not doing that. So I, um, I start digging on my own and I start traveling on my own and I'm not telling anyone I'm doing it. And I'm going to Nashville and I'm trying to track down the con and I go to Billy Collins's house and I'm sitting with him and I'm talking about his son and I'm just all about the story on my free time. I'm coming in on off days. That story became my first big story at Sports Illustrated. It was called Bare Knuckles. And it really sent me on my way. And it didn't just send me on my way because I think they thought it was a, a decent story. It sent me on my way because it showed some industriousness. Industriousness? Industrialness? Industriousness. <laughs> I was industrious. And uh, I'm a good writer. I can use words. And uh, <laughs> that was a big one for me. And that became, they used to call it a bonus, which is a super long story in the magazine. And that was my first bonus. And it kind of set me up. Let me ask you one other quick SI thing here. Dana had taken me through the SI offices at one point and I went through the, I went through the library, like kind of, kind of the, the morgue, which is, which is this repos, I mean, this repository of sports knowledge. That's just absolutely fucking amazing. You go through and there's like entire shelves of Muhammad Ali clips and, and, and stories and newspapers and, and whatever else. Can you give people sort of like what, what, a, what a flavor of, of that was as a resource and, and sort of kind of like what you would be sent in there to, to, to find? Right, so you're describing my favorite place on earth. And I'm not actually just saying that. And sadly, it's gone. It's yeah. gone. SI doesn't have an office anymore. They literally don't have an office. They have no office. It's completely digital. It breaks my heart. The SI library was my, I'm not, it was my favorite place on earth. So you would walk in and 
they would have all these red folders, like rows and rows of red folders, alphabetical of athletes and subjects. So if you wanted to look up George Foster, there'll be this file and it wouldn't say it would be clipped newspaper articles and magazine articles dating back could be decades. You would find weird stuff in there. You could find like, you would just never know. You could find a copy of George Foster's rookie contract with his signature. You just, it was ridiculous. And I, I would go in there. I would go in there just as a geek. Like I really would. I'd go in there and I'd be like, I'm going to look up Joel Youngblood and just read about Joel Youngblood today, former meta outfielder. I'm going to sit here and read about Eric Dickerson. I'm just going to read about Eric Dickerson today. They had every media guide you could imagine dating back years and years. So they'd have these blocks, Tampa Bay Buccaneers. You pull it out. It'd have every media guide since the team started in 1976. Pittsburgh Steelers all the way back. They'd have all the college media guides, every book you could think. I mean, it was the greatest resource I've ever known. And when I started writing books, I still had enough friends at Sports Illustrated. I'd be like, can I come up and use the library? And I would just sit there and be, I would take two days to photocopy every clip I could find about like the Showtime Lakers or whatever. It was it breaks my heart that that place doesn't exist anymore. It was so great. Do you know what happened to the morgue? I really don't. Like I know it's bits and pieces. I think some, one of the photographers told me they called a, a bunch of photographers and said, if you guys want to come in and take some of the stuff, come on in. I have like a, a banner that I took from there. It's a sports illustrated thing in my son's room, but no, I don't. Wow. Well, it sucks. It really sucks. It's a miscarriage of uh, journalism justice right there. Well, it- but this speaks to sort of 150 years of of sort of U.S. media evolution, right? Like there, we always think that one thing is going to destroy us, and then the next thing comes along, and it certainly is no longer in that form. But is there is there a solution to that digitally? That that it's even more is that good for journalism? Is that bad for reporters? Is that good for fans? Like the fact that all of that information you're talking about, it's going to be aggregated digitally at some point where it's all out there and available, right? Like where's the, who is that good for? And who is that bad for? The thing is, I don't think it is though. Like, I, all right. I just think they're, t- all right. The best thing that's happened modern wise, modern technology wise for journalism, in my opinion is, is, and this is going to sound simplistic is newspapers.com, which is the best database I've ever seen. And I use all the time and it is absolutely amazing. So that's a big plus. Like I never had that before three years ago, researching books. And I always tell young journalists and older journalists, if you don't have a subscription, it's like a hundred bucks a year. It's the best hundred bucks a year of all it's time. A, it's a ridiculous deal. Ridiculous. But I don't think there's anybody who benefits from like this huge, amazing database of material just vanishing into the abyss. I just, it makes me sad. And like, it just does. It makes Like I think about in my personal life and how when my kids were little, I would record everything on a CD. We started using mini CDs. I'm gonna record everything on a mini CD. And all right, so I have this mini CD, but I don't even know what the hell to do with it because there's nowhere. And all right, then we're going to record it on a large CD, on a DVD. We're going to record on this DVD disc. Anyone have a DVD? You know, like it's hard when the material no longer fits the modern structure. And I think that's what happened with a lot of stuff like that. Like nobody, no younger journalists coming along now are going to be like, I'm just going to go dig through a folder. It's just not how you think. So I don't know if it all translate, translates particularly well to the modern scheme. I think this is a good transition here to talk a little bit about your process. You've written nine books now. You're kind of constantly in process for whatever your next sort of thing is. When you decide on a topic, what's the first thing you do? Um, first thing, well, when I, well, first thing I do is I try to get a book deal. So let's right. just say that <laughs> first thing I do, I get a book deal, right? So I know I'm writing about the USFL. First thing I do is I go to eBay and I order every media guide and book that exists on the subject. So that's the first thing I do, like, USFL there was really fun for me because I just love the USFL. So like digging back or like I did Walter Payton, or I just wrote Bo Jackson, which isn't, it's coming out next year, but 
first thing I did was get every Auburn media guy from when he was there, all the Raider media guys, the White Sox media guys, the Angel media guys, the Royals media guys. I get yearbooks. I track down yearbooks of the people. And then the second thing I do off of that, I'm a little old fashioned. This is I'll make a word, a Microsoft word file for every person in all those media guides and yearbooks. And then I go back and I start trying to find every person, finding a phone number, an address, whatever. I do that for every file. And then I go back and start calling them. Meanwhile, I'm building a database, usually newspapers.com, Nexus, stuff like that, of every article I can find about that person. Like Bo Jackson, I literally, from the time he was at McAdory High School until the time he retired with the Angels, I'm literally going day by day through the newspaper database, searching Bo Jackson and seeing what's been written about him. It's a, uh, it's a maddening but joyful process. Go back, go back one step before that. How do you settle on that topic? What is it about a topic that makes your brain go, this is it right here? So I have three, uh, I would say I have three criteria. Well, number one is I'm super, super nostalgic. Like my least favorite book I've written was probably the Roger Clemens book because I didn't really have a sense of nostalgia for Roger Clemens. It was just, honestly, I, I got a really good offer for that book and I was like, all right, I'll do it. And then I didn't enjoy it. So I learned from that. I'm very nostalgic. Three things I always ask myself. Number one, has, um, has anyone done it and it hasn't been done well? Like there are always books on people, quick hit books on like, Kobe, the, you know, Kobe, the kid, you know, and it's like, but nobody really put that much into it. So it hasn't been done, hasn't been done well. Number two, would I lose my mind devoting two years to this subject? Like it has to be something that's going to hold my interest for two years. And then number three is, does it have at least a shot of selling? You know, like there are books I would love, love, love to write, but I don't, I don't have a Stephen King name where you just put my name on a book and it's automatically going to sell. I just don't. So if I want to write a book about like the 1986 Denver Broncos, I mean, no one's going to buy it. So I do need to feed my family. So those are kind of three things I ask myself. When you're diving into the, this kind of clip database, looking and trying to read everything you can about a subject, what's interesting is when the time Bo was was a high schooler and looked like he was superhuman mm-hmm. uh, and, until the time he retired, I mean, there was stuff written about him every single day. You had you had beat reporters, you had feature writers, you, you had you had all of these things being written about him. But beat reporting's changing a little bit now. Do you think that 20, 30 years from now, when people are, are writing books about this era, they're gonna have the same kind of they're gonna have the same kind of resource to go back to? Because when you're building a narrative and when you're building a a book about someone, you're really mining all of these experiences and, and, and all of these all of these stories for details. And, and for kind of the, the things that can, can make a really well-rounded portrait. But there's not as much of that going on right now. It's actually really a weird time um, and hard to, un, hard to fully understand how it's going to be a long-term impact. Like on the one hand, social media makes people feel like they have greater access than ever to athletes, right? Like uh, I want to learn about whoever. I don't know if Mike Trout's on Twitter, but Mike Trout, you know, like there he is. And he's telling me he loves, you know, Oreos as a snack. Well, that's, that's access. Maybe I didn't have it in the past, but I feel like um, leagues are really locking out journalists more than ever. And COVID took that to a new level. And I don't think it's going to turn back. Access is less than it's ever been, maybe ever. I also feel like the social media stuff is often really surface. Again, like Mike Trout likes Oreos. Okay. Wow. You know, it doesn't really give me that much. And he's barely giving it to a reporter. So I think for a beat writer now, it sucks. Part of being a beat writer is going into the locker room and getting to know the players and understanding them. And the thing that actually first changed it for me was when uh, in baseball, you start seeing new stadiums being built and they rearranged clubhouses. So they gave, I'm not exaggerating when I say this, they gave players more places to hide from the media. 
Like it used to be, you were either in there or you were eating. You're either in the lunchroom or you're sitting by your locker. Now there are all these side rooms and you never see the players. And it just, everything's kind of branched off of that. The, the bright side for long-term book-wise is I feel like there's more things to dig into because you know less. We actually do know less about these athletes now than we ever did. It's kind of weird. So you're not going to have the in-depth stories, the great features, blah, blah, blah. So 20 years down the road, when you're looking back at a team, I think there'll be a lot more material to, to mine. I think that's kind of not a bad place to be. Lamestream Sports, Steve Cavendish of the Nashville Banner is brought to you by Yes Boots. <laughs> I make it? Yeah, uh, 60%, 60%. Yeah. But, I, you know, I thought we'd evolved like Jaspers uh, past the uh, the Latin goal call uh, of Jaspers. But I guess we're back there now. We're, well, we're, you know, sometimes you just want to play evolved. the hits. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Play the hits, which is such a god awful radio media term. Anyway, I just had some PTSD, Steve. Uh, go to Jasper's. The parking is free. The happy hours are spectacular. You can get $3 beers and $10 smash burgers during Preds games home and away if they take place. Um, but it's a great place to watch. And um, again, you can park for free. I mentioned there. Also, Steve, we've talked about the gift cards where you can get 20% off a $100 gift card. They'll give you a $20 gift card for free as well. So just handing out free money to people. But but in, in addition to all of that, the food and the parking and the happy hours and all that great stuff, Steve, they also can help you stuck, stuck, stuff your stockings. Wow. <laughs> stuck your stocking. Stuck, stuck your, your stopping. St stuck your stuffing. <laughs> they can help you stuff your stocking on Christmas. How about that? I am always looking for kind of like unique stuff for my wife's stocking, particularly kind of edible stuff. Sounds, sounds personal. It's it, it's the uh, I mean, I, I think that's the most fun stuff. There, there's stuff from Goo Goo Clusters and Colt Chocolates and Tennessee Peanut Company and a bunch of other a bunch of other stuff that that I really like that you can find in the market at Jasper's. Just go in, go in, walk around. I'm sure you're going to find something. I did this the other day. I grabbed a couple of things that, that are that are going in Jen's stocking this year. There, there's a couple of different places around town that you always go. You're like, oh, I, I can get these little knickknacks. Jasper's is definitely one of them. And you're going to get like really good food stuff. I, I will also be doing that, and I'm glad that both of our wives do not listen to the podcast because they hear us talk enough at home. So, <laughs> um, but no, you're right. It's all kinds of locally sourced, really good, you know, kind of cool little little small items at the market. So what you do is you go into Jasper's. You don't pay for parking. You can buy a gift card for, well, for somebody in your family or friends and get a deal, have a great meal, watch the Preds game, get a special deal, then slide through the market on the way out and and do your Christmas shopping. Like it's and Oh, by the way, they also you can pre-order right now peppermint bark and cookie tins from jaspers that will be ready for your christmas holiday but you need to order them now and again that's uh, i believe megan williams right the pastry chef there at jaspers who's like one of the best in the city so th these are not, this is not your average cookie tin or your average peppermint bark this will be exceptional and elevated like the rest of jaspers big fan of the peppermint bark a lot of fun I can, it's, I, you know what? It is, I, it's like a perfect kind of holiday sort of thing. It really is. And I do not like, so I'm a, I'm a huge chocolate fan, chocoholic, but I do not love sort of um, like candy canes or mints or like your basic stuff. But when it's mixed with like dark chocolate, like one of those little Andes mints, you know, or I'm assuming like this, this peppermint bark, when it's chocolate and peppermint, then I'm all in, but it needs to have chocolate with it, like a bark. So it's a good, oh, it, that, that to me is always a good sign that, you know, winter is here, even when it's 70 degrees outside. 
Yes, it's, it's true. Although my kids are loving that. So order those tins right now from Jasper's. You can order them uh, online, call them up, do whatever you need there. Go to Jasper's. You can also park for free, stuff your stockings, and uh, eat a great meal and watch the Preds. Go to Jasper's, everybody. What's interesting is I still think all of that information and that data is all going to be out there. I think the challenge is no longer like physically walking into, you know, a morgue and picking out all the information and trying to search because it's all been categorized for you. The, the key there for me is now you've got you, you don't have the, the gatekeeper aspect of the, the veracity of the information. Like you've got a thousand times more information floating out there on a subject. But how do you know what what's real and what's not? And what like, like how do you deal with that part of the process? I mean, you just summed up America's problem right now is the amount of misinformation being floating around. I mean, from politics to sports to entertainment to whatever. That's a hard, that's a real challenge. I mean, that is a real challenge is trying to figure out what's real, what's fake, what isn't, what isn't. And to me, like I always, every now and then, like my mom, just as an example, will put out something on Twitter, not on Twitter, she's not on Twitter, but on Facebook. <laughs> She'll be like, I, you know, I, I blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, mom, that's not real. What are you talking about? That's not, did you? take five seconds to Google that. Like, it's not real. And that applies to journalism too. Like, and one of the things you're supposed to do as a journalist, obviously is dig and dig and dig and dig and dig. It's part of the joy of the job. So I just think there's a greater, there's far more um, nonsense material out there. Now, one of the challenges as a reporter is just to super dig and check and check and recheck. And I think that's harder than ever. When is, I want to go, cause you've now brought up a couple of different things. Like it's sloppier. Now you can get away with more mistakes. Now people are used to consuming mistakes. So they're more, okay with it you just talked about sort of the the real and the fake stuff and some of that was physically a newspaper divided fact from opinion for you in front of your face right like that's why it was was done that way and now all of social media has skewed towards opinion all of cable television is skewed towards opinion a lot of it because it's incentive based i guess my question is thinking broadly where is the the tipping point we steve and i talk about this all the time where's the financial tipping point to push back on all of this where we as a society are going to be like, all right, we're done with the misinformation age. We, we need a system of order here. I don't know if there is. I've never seen anything like it. It's funny. I, this is a discussion I have a decent amount. I'm 49. So when I was growing up, your family would watch the five o'clock local news and the six o'clock national news. And that's where you'd get your material. Maybe you'd read the New York Times or the Washington Post or the Tennessean or the Wall Street Journal or whatever your paper was. And you, sorry. And you wouldn't think of it as like, I'm turning on the TV so someone can tell me what I should think, right? It wasn't, that wasn't really, it wasn't even how you thought it. I'm not, I'm going to turn on and Dan Rather is going to tell me, or Peter Jennings is going to tell me what I should think. It wasn't that. It was, they're going to give you the news. There was a fire here. There's an outbreak of this here. And that's how it worked. Even sports. There was no Stephen A. Smith. There's no Skip Bayless. No one is telling you Dak Prescott is a bum or Bryce Harper is great. Like you would digest the information and you would develop opinions. And you would talk about it with people. And that's how it came. There's no Tucker Carlson, no Rachel Maddow, no, none of that stuff. And I think it's, um, the problem is people really like hearing material that backs up their worldview. They just do. I mean, period. Stop. So he, agree, he agrees. Yeah, she, it's a she. First she all sorry, that. sorry. Yeah. Um, they just, people like hearing material that backs up their worldview. And I don't know how you get away from that. I don't know. It's almost like everyone's gotten a big dose of Coke and they want more Coke. You know, like they don't want, they don't want to, they don't want to go to rehab, but it's broken. Like we are broken news wise. This is a broken country. You know, we are, it is. And I mean, all news, I'm not just like, I'm liberal, but I don't mean just liberal. I think all media is broken right now. It really is. 
And so much of it is about profits and about generating clicks. You see that pressure generating clicks. It breaks my heart. And the one, I just want to say the one thing that's made done me, made me happy is books have somehow survived and books still sell. And we were talking book apocalypse a decade ago. What's, what's fascinating is you use the word Coke as like a joke, like as a metaphor. And really it's not a metaphor. It is a dopamine release in your brain yes. from a social media company. Like it's actual cocaine. <laughs> I mean, you're holding your phone as you say right, this. Like, right. yeah, yeah, you got your Coke in your hand. I know. On, pur on purpose, by the way, that was on purpose. Oh, all right. Yeah. No, but, yeah, I, I agree with you. They know what they're doing and everything is, I mean, it's so, if you think about it, I know this isn't the top, like you're looking at your phone, you're looking at Instagram. And you get an ad and you're like, I was just talking about this with my kid five minutes ago. How is this ad popping? Like something is really messed up about that. You know, it, it's not, it, it's not that they're listening in on you. It's that they have so much information about yep. you yep. as a, a, as a, as a, as a viewer, as a consumer, as a human that they can target these things with incredible specificity. Yep. And that's the power of this thing. Your, your identity is the commodity. That's what it is. Okay. Oh yeah, it's become the new oil. I've heard people say that. And I actually agree with it. Your in information has become the new oil. So, so books are going to survive. You're going to continue continue writing them. What is your what's your favorite so far? You've done nine. Can you pick a Can you pick a favorite kid, or can you pick at least something that you were like, oh, I, I was doing this and it was unexpectedly popular, or I, this got this got a great response, and I you know I was really just kind of this was a this was a passion project for me. Yeah, I mean. Uh, Probably my two favorite books. I've, I mean, they're making a TV show out of my Laker book. So I got to say like, that's kind of yeah, yeah. sweet. But I would say the USFL book was really meaningful. It's called Football for a Buck. Yep. Because nobody want no, I mean, my agent. Free, was free, free ad. It's an excellent book. It's okay. really, really good. And I, and I love the, that is like the sweet spot of my becoming a, becoming a sports fan as a, a as a kid. Totally. Me too. And um, my agent was like, my agent's awesome, but he's like, nobody wants an effing USFL book. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> And I had to, um, basically I had to tell, it was the publisher was Hot Mifflin. And I had to say, if I do a Favre book for less money, will you let me do the USFL book? So I got the worst deal ever for the USFL book. I had to write the Favre book first, which I ended up loving. I didn't want to write it. I love doing the Favre book. But the USFL book, I've talked about this to my wife. There's, there's something weird about this, or it's hard to explain, but like, it was this league, people like us remember it, but it's not like there's huge nostalgia for the USFL. It's not like people are like, ah, oh, the USFL, the way they're like, ah, oh, Elvis Presley or Tupac or whatever. And I love that I wrote this book. It sold really well. And people were talking about the USFL. Like that was insanely satisfying for me, you know, more than like, oh, good reviews, bad reviews, whatever. I just like that people were talking about this league that I loved that nobody cared about. And like you find yourself on cable news on like CNBC talking about Donald Trump in the USFL. I just really love that. And then the other one was uh, the Walter Payton biography, uh, which is called Sweetness, just because it was like, a, it was a, it was the hardest book I've ever written. It was a heartbreaking book, but I really threw everything I had into that project, and and it was very rewarding. You mentioned you mentioned the Lakers book. You wrote a book on the Showtime Lakers. HBO is now turning this into a uh, is turning this into a series. Uh, the, if you haven't seen the trailers for it, it's wild looking. It's very stylized. What's it like to see your to, to see a a thing that you wrote kind of end up uh, end up on screen? It's uh it's the coolest thing I've probably ever had happen. I mean, that's taking away like having kids and your wedding all the <laughs> Sure, sure. You're just like, so my wife and I, um, my wife, my wife's a social worker, she's a really good person. And um, we got we each had a day where we got little cameos on the first episode. If you blink, you you'll miss it, but we had real cameos. 
And we had this one day we were on set. I've been on set a few times, but one day we were on set and we were, you know, dressed in our cameo clothes and did a whole thing. It was magical. Like it was magical. You're looking around. It's going to sound cornball, right? I swear to God, it's true. You're looking around and like your book, like these things you wrote are coming to life. Like they're actually, oh, over there, that, oh my God, I wrote about that scene. I wrote about that. This, it's just ridiculous. And that day when we were on set was probably, it had to be one of the five best days of my life. Cause you're like, you're watching John C. Riley film a scene about a book that you wrote. You're about to be in an episode, in a scene about a book you wrote. There's Gabby Hoffman over there. There's Adam McKay over there. There was a moment, one of the nicest moments of my career, truly one of the nicest moments of my career was Adam McKay, who's a great, wonderful guy. He kind of stopped everything. And he said, everyone, I just want to say, Jeff Perlman is here. He wrote the book Showtime. You guys wouldn't be, I don't know, you guys, this would not be happening if you weren't around. And like everyone clapped. And it sounds corny. It was such a nice moment. Like it was just a nice moment. So it's it's just cool. It's really, you know, I'm 22 years old at the Tennessee and I did not see my life going in this direction. The, the McKay thing makes me wonder, there was a Vanity Fair piece here that talked about kind of the split up of uh, McKay and, and Will Ferrell. Is it kind of surreal to watch that as this is happening around, you know, the, the production of a, of a thing that came from your book? Yeah, not that much. It's funny. People keep saying to me, you broke them up. And I'm like, I didn't break them up. <laughs> <laughs> not really. I'm not actually a, uh, this is unsexy, but I'm not really like a, not really a Hollywood, like gossipy. Like a lot of these people, there've been different cases. I won't name names who, but like, they're like, Oh my God, so-and-so actors in the series. And I'm like Googling, who is this person? Like, I don't, <laughs> so I don't even like, I still haven't read the Vanity Fair story that I, that you're talking. I know I should, but I just haven't. So not that much. It's, it's, it's not a bad piece. What I'm fascinated by is you, you mentioned why, you know, you're so glad that books have survived. And I, you know, I'm a, I'm a reader who buys physical copies of books and read it. And I know I'm a dinosaur and I, I get all that, but, but the concept has still survived. Podcasts are now, have now exploded as a digital audio medium because I think exactly the same reason, you know, books are surviving. We've got Substack now. We've got, what is it? it does that give you a glimmer of hope though, that, that people still want to push back on sort of the, the clickbait traffic and, and sort of the, the embrace debate and all this other stuff? Like, do you have hope that the reason books have survived is that there are gonna, there's going to be this entire, you know, movement of people that still want to go 400 pages into the USFL? Yeah. And I don't even think it makes you a dinosaur to read a physical book. I see a lot of people of all ages still reading physical books. And if you think about it, like, you know, when we have little kids, we sit them down. We don't generally put them in front of a screen when we're reading to them. We pick up a Sandra Boynton book and we turn the pages. And so I think there's something about books. It's just, I mean, my books, my shelf right here, you know, there's always a physical book sitting here on my, on my shelf. I just think it's hard to replicate what a book does. You know, like you can, yeah, you can take an article, you can take a profile of Albert Pujols and take it from the pages of SI to a screen in front of you and you can read it and it's, it's comfortable. I don't think it's the same. I don't know how you replicate what you get from a book. I just don't know how you replicate that. You know, like the deep dive, the feeling of satisfaction, the getting to know characters, um, the feeling of accomplishment when you're done with 300 pages, reading a 300 page book, the investment you put in, sitting in bed at night, reading a book. And it doesn't matter if it's on a tablet or on paper. I just think they haven't really found a way to replicate that. And Podcast wise, I freaking love podcasts and I'm thrilled by podcasts. To me, po people talk about quote unquote long form journalism. I feel like podcasts are a, one of the next steps in long form journalism, but really a really good step because it's still writing, it's still reporting, it's still investigative, they're paying well. And it's really a lot of the products are amazing. Do documentaries would be the same, would be the version, the sure. visual, visual version, right? Totally, totally. So there's still like long form journalism. There's a lot of great 
There's a lot of great journalism going on. It's just packaged a little differently these days. We we were having this conversation with Jordan Ritter Khan, does stuff for The Ringer, has done stuff for, for other outlets. And he's kind of done this transition from going from being like a long form writer to the last couple of things he's done are these like long form podcasts. He did one on the, the Seattle Supersonics. Uh, he did a recent, um, I'm blanking on what he did one on Len Bias. He did a whole oh, right. he did, on the, Len Bias. He did a really good one on, on Len Bias here recently. I, I think you're right. I think it's interesting that, that, you can that there are these avenues that are that are much meatier than than anything that you'll find in sort of in sort of digital in sort of digital media you know even even the conversation even conversation podcast i think you can get into a lot more depth than you ever would from from just you know a 5 minute video interview or 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 something like that you've done a you're doing a couple of different things in this realm when you're not writing books you've got a you got a substack that I think if you're a if you're a college student, you should go subscribe to Jeff Substack because he does a couple of things in there. One, the mistakes stuff that he writes about a lot is is really valuable uh, to kind of hear people talk about kind of what they learn from their mistakes. But you've done a couple of things like there was a you did a piece on door knocking and kind of the value of door knocking. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you discuss that just a little bit because because I think that's something that kids and kids and Jason it's really really funny. I sent that to like twenty different college kids that I. Oh, that, that I'm around and a bunch of them were like, wow, you know, this is something I don't get in class, which oh. is, <laughs> which yeah. is, I, I, you know, I need to go out there and do this, not just, you know, troll Twitter for, for the, the responses that I think that are, are going to feed my story. The door knock is the scariest thing in the world, but the best thing in the world. I love hate door knocking. I mean, my, I don't even think I mentioned this and maybe I did my, when I was working on the, uh, my, my last book, which was about the Shaq Kobe years, the Lakers, I went to J.R. Ryder's house and J.R. Ryder, former Laker, kind of a little bit erratic to be polite. Oh, my God. A little erratic. Um, I didn't have a phone number for J.R. Ryder. I just had an address. So I uh, I went to his um, I just went to his house and I showed up at his house at 930 in the morning and I had a copy of my USFL book with me. And I knock on the door and a kid answers the door and uh, I'm like, hey, I'm looking for J.R. Ryder. You know, it's like, hold on. Woman comes to the door. I'm like, hey, I'm looking for J.R. Ryder. Who are you? I'm a writer. I'm working in blah, blah. J.R. Ryder comes to the door. He does not look happy. He's <laughs> like, uh, who are you? I'm like, yeah, my name is Jeff Perlman. I'm writing a book about Lakers. No, no. I go, hey, my name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a writer. He goes, no, no, man. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I have I have my US book. No, then he opens the door and he comes out and he's big. He's a big guy. He's like, Dude, you you just show up in my house? You show up in my house? You kidding me? You show? What's that book you got? Oh, I wrote a book about the USFL. Is that the Trump League? I'm like, yeah. Dude, you just show up in my house? What's the book you working on? Well, I'm doing a book about the Shaq Kobe Lakers. You were there. You're kind of a key part of it. All right, man. I'll talk to you. I'll talk to you. <laughs> and I got two hours with J.R. Ryder, and um, I've always just found that like it's terrifying. Being a door knocking is like really bad turbulence on a plane where you're like, you'll probably be okay, right? You'll probably be okay, but you're not a hundred percent certain. And I've knocked on so many doors now and people think like, you're, Oh, you're tough. You're not going to, I'm not tough. I'm a wimp. I just forced myself to do it. And one of the things about journalism is I really do think you have to walk through your fears. It's like life probably, but definitely in journalism, making calls you're afraid of knocking on doors that you're afraid of. You just got to walk through your fear. 
It's it's amazing how all of that translates directly into political campaigns as well. It's, it's exactly the same thing for people trying to get to know communities around them. Speaking of knocking on the door, can you? How were you feeling inside right before you knocked on that that door of apartment D, uh, looking for Sports by Brooks? Oh man, um, terrified. Always terrified. That's the thing. You're always terrified. You don't know what's going to happen. And that story. I mean, I didn't even know who Sports by Brooks was really. You know, my editor was like, oh, a story on this guy. What do you think? Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, okay. And I did a little research and I, I hired a private investigator. And then I used another private investigator. I used a bunch of them actually to find everything I could. And I wound up at this apartment complex, middle of nowhere, LA, not that nice. There's apartment D there's one floor. Uh, there was one car parked and there was in that space for that apartment. I knock on the door and some guy answers and I'm like, Hey, for Brooks. And he's like, I don't know who that is. And then it turns out it was like his coworker. And uh, that was as close as I came really to talking to, to Brooks. Story never ran. I ran on my sub stack just because I thought it was an interesting educational piece. What made you finally run it on the sub stack? Because, I mean, people like me have been badgering you for years to because this thing was going to come out on, uh, was it Bleacher Report? Yeah. And then holding out on us. You, you kind of went, you kind of got waved off of it and then. Just and then you just kind of sat on it, and I think you were you were worried about what I don't know whether psychological issues or kind of kind of affecting. Why did you why did you end up deciding to run it? I think I was kind of bored, and I thought I'm just going to run this. And I, I took out parts that were like might have been sort of I didn't want to indict anyone, or you know, I, so I took out a lot of it. But I people had always been asking about it, and I was kind of to be honest, like I didn't want to throw anyone a bleach report under the bus. I was mad when they didn't run it, and you know, I was annoyed when they didn't run it. I worked hard on that story. And I just, I just saw what the hell, you know, I'll take out the parts that are objectionable or, you know, that just took out certain parts of it. And I thought it was an interesting experience. Like I'm a huge fan. I really am. I'm a fan of talking about journalism. I'm a fan of digging into journalism. I really like it. I'm kind of a geek about it all. And here's a story that was kind of interesting in this experience. So what's what's the value of doing a story like that, that doesn't have an ending? I mean, you, you never talk to him. You don't know kind of I mean, ultimately, the, the story ends up being about the quest as much as it does. Yeah, but that's okay. I mean, that's okay. Not, sometimes you're not going to get an ending. Sometimes you're not going to. I mean, I didn't know how the Bo Jackson book would end. I didn't know how any of these books. I mean, I know there's endings, but I don't know how. Sometimes you're not going to get what you want. You know, you're not. So you can make the argument. You could definitely make the argument. Maybe you shouldn't have run that story because you didn't really find them. So what's the point? Who cares? You went on the search, kind of self-indulgent. I buy that. That's a fair argument to make. I can't argue that. Or you can write a Herschel book knowing that there's a lot more books coming um, as, it, <laughs> as it pertains to certain subjects. I, I'm curious, though, about because sports by what you wrote about in that piece about sports by Brooks and what makes it interesting to me, not 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 to your point about where he's where he is or his personal situation or like none of that stuff's really that interesting to me. What's yep. interesting to me is why it worked so well when it did. I got into the media in 2005 right after college. I'm a few years younger than you guys. And but it was such a huge part of covering college athletics on sort of my quote unquote beat at the time from like Oh five to like, Oh, not eight or nine or 10 or whatever that like that website was as part of my daily routine, looking for radio content as, as anything and why it worked, I think is a critical lesson as to how we get, maybe how we get out of the, the current conundrum we're in when it comes to content. I don't know. I don't know how you feel about that. I don't even, why do you think it worked? Salacious you know, early, um, beginning of its time, capitalizing on the medium that nobody really had figured out yet, maybe. And I think you wrote about this too. It wasn't just like he went out and physically took the photos of the girls. <laughs> like, yeah. I think, 
I, I think that was a, a, a unique thing, but everything that's traced through his work is what I see now everywhere around me. Yeah. And I, I, mean, I don't that, know. Is, it, is he the impact? Is he the, is he the godfather? Maybe in a way, you know, um, it's kind of grim. I mean, I don't, I don't really like the site. I mean, I thought he was a, he had some value as a journalist and like worked, he obviously worked hard. It's not really my thing. I think to me, I see a much greater impact on modern journalism from Bill Simmons than from sports on Brooks. I think Bill Simmons changed, truly changed the course of this profession. I guess your vantage point depends on your vantage point, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Well, I, I want to be clear. Like I would read Bill Simmons before I would read sports by Brooks sure, sure, as, yeah, right. as a person, but, but let me ask you, there's a reason Grantland's not, not around and that barstool is worth you know a hundred million dollars yeah no that's a fair point i mean also at the end of the day if you're talking about like barstool and sports by brooks like you're never going to go wrong financially going for raw and simple and base needs women beer hard hits you know like whatever the raw like sort of you're never going to go wrong commercially chasing that stuff. I don't know if it's satisfying, if it's fulfilling, but you don't go wrong chasing that stuff. I think Simmons is a little higher and I'm not a, uh, I'm had mixed feelings on Simmons and some of the stuff that's happened because I don't love, I don't love uh, journalists professing their fandom at all. I kind of hate that, <laughs> but it's kind of a thing that I know. The one other thing you're doing when you're not writing books is uh, you, you've got this, you've just got this long running interview series called two writers slinging Yang is really interesting to me because it's given you kind of license to just reach out to people. I mean, a lot of them were people you knew, but, but some of them are not. What made you decide to do it? And I think there's a lot of value, again, if you're a college student or if you're somebody who cares about the craft in kind of hearing about people talk about the craft of, of journalism and of writing. Uh, but what made you decide to do it? And, and, and how long are you going to, is this, this thing can kind of go in perpetuity, can it? Yeah. I, I just love talking journalism. I love talking writing. I feel like it's a really good opportunity for me to learn from different writers. I've met a lot of journalists from doing it. I'm, I'm up to almost like my 250th episode, I think. So I've done it a long time now. I just love writing. I really do. It's my favorite thing is talking about writing and digging into writing and trying to figure it out. And I'm like tortured by it, but also in love with it. Uh, like a lot of writers are, I think. And um, it's like, oh, you can do this thing. And every week you can talk to a different writer. Really? And people listen to it. That's great. And the other thing I just want to say, like, the podcast Substack, I've had people say, why don't you charge or why don't you have ads or all this stuff, right? I just think sometimes it's okay to do something because you enjoy it. Like why are people, it's always looking for like Substack. Like I just enjoy it, you know? And I'm in a position where I'm fairly financially comfortable and I'm, I make enough money in my books. Sometimes I just want to do something to help people. I'm like Substack, like you said, you share that with some college students. Like that's thrilling to me. Like, that's honestly the reason I do it. And that's it. There's no, no, no other motive. I like talking writing. I like writing about writing. And I like the conversations. That's it. Uh, and and not not to get too deep here, but part part of the reason that you're capable, like you said, the first part of that sentence, right? Fairly financially, okay, whatever. There, there's a whole everyone under the age of thirty in our business is not. Oh, of course, <laughs> no, no, no. I'm not dogging anyone. I <laughs> agree. I think Substack is an amazing opportunity for people to make money as journalists, and I think it's important. I think you should. I I do not like hearing people, young journalists especially, writing for free. You know, like where places aren't paying yeah. them, but giving them violent. I hate that. I'm just saying I happen to be in a fortunate position where I'm a little older and I've been around a little bit and my books have sold and I'm able to do a couple of things right. just because it makes me feel good. Well, I, I wasn't saying that to uh, to, to like Damn, knock, you, knock you down, man. That's not what I was doing. In fact, <laughs> in fact, what I think you're doing is and I think 
going back to sort of the dopamine hits for social media and the incentive-based structure for sort of media bottom lines, I, I think the, strangely, like we almost need the core I- identity of us all consuming media has to become sort of like, oh, if you're misinformed, you're an outcast to some degree. Like I don't, I don't know how, I don't know how society gets to that point where it has to be core to I- our identity to be informed again. And I think people writing long form books and doing long podcasts and doing long documentaries, I think that is at least fighting the good fight in that sense to try to keep people informed. And then maybe people will come around at some point, maybe some regulation helps. I don't, I don't know what the future holds. I just think the one thing that is in, I wish more people would remember and see is like, it is much more satisfying to read a great Wright Thompson or Tom Verducci or, you know, like whoever, some great piece than it is to hear Stephen A. Smith or Skip Bayless go off for 20 seconds on the Chargers field goal kicker when he doesn't even know who the kicker is until five seconds before he's talking about it. And it's just some rant that gets click, 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 click. Like to me, it's all empty calories, you know? And I got no beef with those guys, but it's just empty calories. And I hate that. I guess I do have beef because I kind of hate it. Well, <laughs> the, the way we fight it, though, is to keep churning out thoughtful and creative and, and careful and meticulous content. And uh, you, you do it among the best of all the people in the world. Maybe not at the Tennessee and in the 90s, but you're definitely <laughs> doing it now. Uh, thank, you. thank you for giving us so much of your time. We really appreciate it. And uh, hopefully we'll talk soon. And go buy some books, everybody. Go buy some books. Thank you. That was Jeff Perlman, nine-time author and best-selling writer and reporter, formerly of the Tennessean. Um, Steve, that, that's just a, he's a fascinating dude, and as a Mets fan, who you know, he sort of wrote one of the definitive books on the 1986 Mets. Like I sort of got introduced to him at a fairly early age, and I could go anywhere in the world with Jeff Perlman, and I think we would have an interesting conversation. Perlman is one of my favorite book authors right now. I love the USFL book. That is just one of my favorite books from the uh, from the last ten years. Uh, in part because it was such a a formative time for me as a sports fan. You know, I was like 12 years old when the when the league launched. And I remember, you know, we, we went to Memphis Showboats games. We went to, you know, I, I remember what the, the the Michigan Panthers helmets were like and the, the San Antonio Gunslingers and the LA Express. I, I loved those teams. I, I was very much a, I had like USFL paraphernalia uh, and, and I loved I loved that period. Jeff did such a great job capturing it. If you if you're gonna go, if you want a place to start in his books, go start with that or go start with Sweetness, his book on Walter Payton, which is fantastic. Or you know, go pick up his book about the Showtime Lakers before the HBO series comes out uh, here in in a few weeks. He, he's he's an extremely detailed uh, he's an extremely detailed writer. He's a very good narrative author and th- those aren't always the same things particularly when you're writing nonfiction. he does he does a great job kind of telling stories the one of the things i like about jeff is that he's always willing to sort of share that i mean he started the Substack uh, of his which i highly recommend that you go it's free it, it, it's it free. is free if you're into journalism if you're a college student uh who's listening you know or somebody like young in your career he, he talks a lot about techniques and a lot about uh, there's 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 a whole section in there and we and I brought this up with him about kind of door knocking. Let me give you a really good example. I was up in Kentucky for the New York Times this week. There's a piece that's coming out later this week that I worked on, and you you're walking into a disaster area, and so when you're going knocking on doors or or you're going up to people, you know <laughs> who've lost the doors in their house, it is a stressful situation. You walk up there not knowing. Have they been injured? Have they had a family member who's been injured? Have they, has somebody lost a life? 
you, you, don't, you don't know until you walk up and ask. And I ended up having a conversation with some people out, you know, at the outskirts of Princeton, Kentucky this week that was just amazing about this almost two century old house of theirs, which was gone. And turns out that the guy, the guy who was telling me the story was a, was a hog farmer who was on the pork council and ended up writing the line pork. It's the other white meat. <laughs> and, and that's what you get from those. From the, that's, that's the payoff of going and talking yeah, to people yeah. in person. Uh, and it, it's such a, it's such a valuable thing that I think young journalists over rely on, on digital means instead of talking to actual yeah. people, yeah. you know, they go to Twitter first for, to, to source out stories. They go you know, through Google scrapes in order to find data as opposed to kind of going to an area or finding a person to, a, a, as an initial point of reference. And I think that, that type of, it, we're not losing that type of, of journalism, but it's definitely not taught as a skill set as much anymore. Uh, and I like that Jeff is is willing to share these things, uh, particularly with with young uh, and early, you know, with early career journalists about the value of them. Well, and what's fascinating to me about that angle and sort of your experience and his experience, I think there's sort of a you could almost pull it back and zoom zoom out to the entire world. And I sort of joked about it with politics, like actually going door to door and finding out what people want versus what's being said on Twitter. Like there, there are these two universes that we live in now, the social digital internet world that we all live in, like on Instagram and, and the real world. And while there is influence and, and the digital world and the real world sort of influence each other and can tweak each other and change things that actually happen in real life, real life is still very different. It's still like the stories are like the people and the nuance and the subtlety and the richness of, of what actually happens in real life, I think is, is an important you know point that he's making. I, I, I do totally believe and agree with him. Obviously, you know, we think podcasts and long form conversations are still very valuable to people's consumption, obviously here. And that's what he does in book form. I think there are documentary series that are doing that. I think making mistakes is okay, as long as you acknowledge them and then learn from them. And you sort of talked about this before the interview, but it's not, it's not like a young reporter's fault that the, the the large media you know machine doesn't allow for financial resources to create all those layers of editing any longer like that's not the young reporter's fault it's just on the reporter now to make sure that they don't make those mistakes at the same time people are more accustomed to that that on the so on, on twitter now like we see we, we've had discussions on this show steve about like is that the right headline should this be the right sourcing like we we do that all the time on the show so it's a tricky place out there and i don't jeff didn't really have an answer for what the next step is for all of this and i think whoever does will make a fortune <laughs> but 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 hopefully there's a next step through all of this where the real life stuff and the digital life maybe converges a little bit more I, that that's i know that's a little philosophical and a little meta but that's what i'm hoping so go read about steve young and herschel walker so so, so um by the way uh, i was like four when that all happened and that's i don't even remember anything about the usfl so the book is a uh, on the, the Christmas list for the wife. I said, Hey, I got a, I got a really easy idea for you. If you want to get me something, honey, go get me the USFL book from uh, Jeff Perlman. So awesome. but, football for a buck is the title. Special thanks to Perlman uh, for hanging out with us. We will probably talk with him more uh, down the road. Uh, ratings and recommendations, Steve. Um, you want to start with ratings? You want to start with Rex? Let's do, the, let's do ratings first. All right, let's do ratings. Uh, Jaguars and Titans. Pretty ugly football game. 25.6. Uh, but the Titans get the big W, and of course, adios, sayonara to Urban Meyer, which I'm a little sad by that, actually, to be honest with you. Bills and Bucks. From an entertainment point of view, like you you liked hating him? 
Oh, I yes, I definitely enjoy saying yeah. negative things about Urban Meyer. He's great for content. Also, great for Titans fans who want to beat the Jaguars, who would be a dumpster fire as long as he's in charge. But he's not anymore, so sad. Um, Bills, Bucks, 18.2. Brady and Allen, that great overtime game. Uh, Bears and Packers, 13.3. Steelers, Vikings, under a 10, 9.3. Patriots, Bills, 9.5. Army, Navy was sixth. How about that? With an 8.2. I mean, it was the only college football game on the weekend. So 8.2. What will be really interesting is now that obviously the NFL will all be the top five, but I am going to be interested and I'll see if I can dig this up next week from, from again, Mark Binda, News Channel 5 here, who provides all of these to us. I will be fascinated to see what Memphis and Tennessee does this weekend. Um, I, I will ask specifically for that game because I doubt it breaks through the NFL top, top five, but maybe if, if all you need to do is get to a 10. In Nashville, could 100,000 households be watching the Memphis-Tennessee game? I bet you they, it, it, it might. So it'll be interesting to see where that game lands because basketball is way better in this state when those two programs are good, and they both appear to be pretty solid this weekend. Um, all right, any questions, any thoughts, comments, concerns about ratings? No, I'm good. Okay. Recommendations here. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll go first since you're being all snarky. 14, 14 Peaks is my recommendation. And uh, as a self-admitted and we just got done my wife and i just got done hiking through arizona we're, we're big hikers we love the mountains and we love um the west when we go hiking and i am as a self-proclaimed john Krakauer fanboy who thinks into the wild and into thin air are like the two greatest books ever written <laughs> like in my opinion i i loved watching Free Solo, which was also on, I believe, on uh, Disney, I think, um, about the, the the climbing of El Capitan without a top rope for, um, and I can't remember the, the climber's name, but we watched 14 Peaks, which is about Nims Dai Perja. Nims is, is, is sort of what people call him by. He's a Nepali climber who is just a freakazoid of a human being. Like, this guy was in the special military forces in Nepal and then the special military forces for UK. He just, like, is an insanely intense driven strong human being and and his goal and this in the movie the documentary 14 peaks is about climbing the tallest 14 mountains in the world they're all above 8000 uh, 8000 meters which is about 26000 feet they're all in the nepal tibet pakistan china region and netflix it's on netflix it is the, the cinematography of course is spectacular because it is a region of the world that is just unbelievably um visually stimulating but his character and his personality is so interesting so unique and a couple of things hit me k2 and everest get a lot of run right like the two biggest mountains in the world we know about them the fact yep. that there, the fact that there are 12 other mountains over twenty six thousand feet that as a huge mountaineering climbing fan of content that i don't really know the names of all in the same area is sort of insane to me uh, and the record for a human being to climb all of these mountains was seven years. That was the shortest time anybody had ever climbed all 14 of these mountains. Seven years. He does it in six months. <laughs> At one point, he climbs Everest and then two other 26,000 foot mountains in a weekend. <laughs> Jesus. It is. What, what, so what, what kind of next what kind level? Of, what kind of support? apparatus he, he has like a whole team around him yes and and what i love about this is also what's cool about the story it's a cultural sort of pulling back the curtain on like the sherpas and the nepali climbers who have not gotten enough national attention you know you know sir edmund hillary gets all the love for climbing everest well there was also tenzing norgay right that climbed everest right. as well and so like right. there's 
when you climb Everest, you sort of do it as like a tourist these days, but like the Sherpa gets you to the top. And so this is sort of a Nepali led and his mother who's dying at the time asks him in the, in the documentary, like, what are you doing, son? <laughs> like, why, why are you doing this? And he says, the world is going to learn a whole lot. And I thought that was a really interesting line from him. And it's not just about accomplishment and mountain climbing and a beautiful documentary. It is about learning what people and humankind can do. It is spectacular. 14 Peaks, Netflix, a guy climbs the 14 tallest mountains in the world in less than seven months. It is extraordinary. Go watch it. Awesome. I can't wait to re- I can't wait to watch. It. I love those types of things. The the name you were looking for was Alex Honnold was the is the the guy who climbs without rope and who who scaled El, who free who free scaled El Capitan. Oh, you're talking about from Free Solo? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. I I love these kinds of like man versus mountain kind of uh, kind of things. Uh, they, they fascinate me. I, I can't wait to watch 15 beats. Is it beats. is it weird to say? And I looked at my wife and I said this during the movie. I think I idolize and look up to people like this more than almost any other person on the planet. I mean, uh, like, I'm I'm this I'm the same way with surfers. I mean, I, I, throw a good surfing documentary in front of me yeah. and I'm and I'm there because I'm so paralyzingly afraid of the ocean and open <laughs> water anyway uh that to watch these guys not only do it but with a you know 50 foot wave coming down on them yeah. is just po- politicians, musicians, actors, Michael Jordan, like they're all people people look up to and they're idols. Like you know what I mean? Like I don't if you told me I could be the guy who climbs Everest. <laughs> like, I don't know. Like that, that, that might be cooler than anything that anybody else does in all of sports or, or, or life. So you, you, you went to the top of the world. I don't know. That's at least our little planet, I guess, uh, which is, which is pretty cool. All right, Steve, uh, go check it out. 14 peaks and, and follow him on the Insta and the social. The dude is like pure inspiration in human form. Awesome. So, all right, go check him out. Nim, uh, Nims die. Perja is his name. Go check him out. Uh, I have a I have a very uh, selfish recommendation. I, I guess for the I guess for the 440 podcast network, go listen to this week's Club and Country uh, podcast. Wes and Tim break down all the roster changes that happen with uh, with Nashville SC. It is a legitimately great podcast. The way they break down kind of some of the Byzantine MLS rules, kind of how all the changes that are have happened to the roster, what kind of what's going to happen going forward. They do such a great job uh, of putting this all in context, particularly of, of Nashville SC season and kind of what they want to accomplish next year, going into this in, into the season with, with a new stadium. It's a great podcast. And I'm not just saying this because I, I like those guys and I'm friends with them. And it, it is, it is just simply, uh, it, if you're a Nashville SC fan, you need to be listening to this because they do such a great job. And, and plus, I like I like that they've spawned hashtag hot Tim winner. I was hoping you're going to get that in there. Hot Tim winner, baby. Um, no, there's no. And of course, uh, I don't I hope I'm not uh, violating any rules here. But Wes, now the play by play man for Nashville SC. So that's fantastic. Um, yeah. Wes Bowling and now elevated to the play by play role on radio. And uh, so you get to hear. Uh, him and uh, all over the I mean you heard them all last year too but now he gets to do play-by-play with with the great with the great John Freeman moving to Virginia um, so go check out Club and Country podcast uh, I don't mind that recommendation at all Steve uh, I'll be very <laughs> honest with that go check it out I was I, and the reason why I said I was listening to it I was coming back from Kentucky the other night and had a long drive and popped it in and it was just it was just it was a great hour of everything that you need to know about the club right now as it as they're as they're setting up this offseason so 
Go listen to Club of Country. Go listen to all the other great podcasts on this network. The Daily, the 440, out every single morning. you got Fringe Element talking all things SEC football with Stephen Godfrey and myself. We've got a lot of unfortunate COVID talk on the Predators podcast, The Gold Standard with Adam Vingen. However, we also talked a lot of positive hockey, too. So just go check that out. Long, long episode this week. A lot of stuff to get to with the Olympics and all that's going on, changing expectations for this Preds team because, as you said, they're fun to watch now. They're 17-10-1 at the time of taping, and you can watch them at Jaspers. That's right. You get great happy hour specials, $3 domestics, $10 smash burger for every home and road Preds game. If and when they do happen, you go to Jaspers, you sit there, you watch the game, you go through the market, you pick up some small stocking stuffers for your nice. for your family. Well your kids, your kids and your spouse and whoever else in your life might need that great stuff. They got gift cards as well, and you don't have to pay for parking. It is the next evolution of the sports bar. Steve, where can people find you? They can find me on the socials at Scavendish on Twitter, at Scavendish on Instagram. Braden, where can they find you? You can find me at Braden Gall on the Twitters. Really hard and complicated there. Uh, at Braden D. Gall on Instagram, at 440 Sports on Twitter and Facebook, at 440 Media on Instagram as well. You can also find me most of the time hanging out at Jasper's. For Steve Cavendish, my name is Braden Gall. Special thanks to Jeff Perlman and to Jasper's. This has been Lane Stream Sports here on the 440 Sports Network.